If you will, turn to our master text in Acts, I'm sorry, John 15. John 15 is where our master text is. And, and I'm going to be doing a continuation of a subject that I began last week called Times of Refreshing. And uh, today's teaching is called Abounding Fruitfulness. Abounding Fruitfulness. So let's go ahead and stand up. When you find that, John 15, stand up. We're going to just hit the ground running here this morning and read the words of the master Jesus in John 15, first seven verses. It says this, I am the true vine, and my father is the gardener, or some versions may say vine dresser. He cuts off every branch in me that bears no fruit, while every branch that does bear fruit he prunes so that it will be even more fruitful. You are already clean because of the word I've spoken to you. Remain in me, and I will remain in you. No branch can bear fruit by itself. It must remain in the vine. Neither can you bear fruit unless you remain in me. I am the vine. You are the branches. If a man remains in me and I in him, he will bear much fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing. If anyone does not remain in me, he is like a branch that is thrown away and withers. Such branches are picked up, thrown into the fire and burned. If you remain in me and my words remain in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be given you. Verse 8, this is to my Father's glory that you bear much fruit, showing yourselves to be my disciples. And all God's people say, Amen. Amen. Go ahead and have a seat. Praise God. All right. Well, folks, uh, abundance, when it comes to spiritual things, which is what that passage referred to, uh, abundance and fruitfulness, abundance, when it comes to spiritual things, is that beautiful overflow of worth and value in a person's life. And, you know, abundant fruitfulness is what you and I were born for. Abundant fruitfulness is what you and I were born for. I don't think that there's a single person in this room right now that doesn't desire that, abundant fruitfulness, right? Yet millions of Christians settle for significantly less than abundant fruitfulness because they misunderstand and resist God's way of bringing it about. So you see, modern day Christians, especially in the West, view God through a very myopic lens, a very narrow lens. A lot of people, their perception of God is that he's a deity that exists to help them on their terms, on their terms. So what does fruitfulness look like then from God's perspective? And that's the question that we need to ask this morning. We all want to gain God's perspective, right? What does fruitfulness look like from God's perspective? Is it just winning others to Christ? Well, yes, evangelism, winning others to Christ is a very big part of fruitfulness, but that's not the complete picture. It's much broader than that. You see, uh, good fruit and good works could be used interchangeably and are used interchangeably in the Bible. Let me give you an example of that. Look at the screen. In Titus 3.14, it says, Let our people also learn to maintain good works, to meet urgent needs, that they may not be unfruitful. So when Jesus gave the short discourse that we read in John 15, his disciples would not have interpreted his words as meaning only evangelism. Uh, as people close to nature, which the disciples were, uh, they would have understood that fruit symbolized the best results or the sweetest prize in life. The fruit that he was referring to 
symbolized the best results or the sweetest prize in life. See, they may have remembered the familiar words from the psalmist in Psalm chapter 1, verse 3. It says, He shall be like a tree planted by rivers of water that brings forth its fruit in season, whose leaf also does not wither, and whatever he does shall prosper. It's talking about in context there, the man that looks intently into, into God's perfect law. Who, uh, who, who meditates on God's law both day and night. That's the context of that verse. So in practical terms then, fruit represents personal growth and good works. Personal growth and good works. In other words, thoughts, attitudes, and actions that God values because they bring glory to him. Okay, Thoughts, attitudes, and actions and, uh, and attitudes that bring glory to God, that please God because they bring glory to him. So then... You bear inner fruit when you allow God to nurture a new Christ-like quality in you. Some of those qualities are listed in Galatians 5.22, which says the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, and self-control. So those are some of the fruits of the Spirit right there. So you bear... uh, inner fruit when you allow God to nurture some of these Christ-like qualities in you. Um, You bear outward fruit when you allow God to work through you to touch someone else's life and bring glory to him. So a key concept that I want you to get for this morning is this. The Father wants more fruit from us so much that he actively tends our lives so we will be moving up from barren to, to a productive branch from an empty basket to an overflowing one. Amen? Amen. And listen, more fruit is always possible. Why? Because this is what we were born for. We were born to bear fruit. And even more fruit after that. And even much more fruit after that. This should be an ongoing process for our entire lives. As a matter of fact, you're familiar with this verse, I think, Ephesians 2.10. For we are God's handiwork or in some versions say workmanship, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God had prepared in advance for us to do. Created in Christ Jesus to do good works. So on that note then, I'd like your help this morning on something. Um, I want you to evaluate, if you will, um, the fruit bearing that you see in the Christian world today. And uh, just give me a... Give me a percentage. How, how many Christians, give me a percentage, how many Christians would you say are bearing little or no fruit today? Just somebody shout out a number. 90%? Uh, okay. 95? I heard 70% as well. So you're saying a vast majority of Christians today are bearing little or no fruit. Okay. Um, how many are bearing some fruit, would you say? Fifty percent. So you're thinking worldwide, not just in the United States. Let's restrict it to the United States because that's that's the world we live in. Um, what's a percentage that you would say of, of Western Christians who are producing some fruit? Forty. I heard forty and fifty. I heard sixty. Twenty-five. Okay. Very good. Um, what was that? <laughs> uh, 
Well, here's my next question. What percentage would you say are producing much fruit? 5%, I heard. Okay, so the consensus that I'm hearing from you is a majority of Western Christians are producing little or no fruit. Um, there's a moderate amount of people that are producing some fruit, according to what you're saying. And I'm, I'm agreeing with you, by the way. And there's a small minority of Christians that are producing abundant fruit. All right, so that was a good exercise. I, let me ask you this then. That, don't answer this out loud. <laughs> Where do you fit in that scenario? Where do you fit in that scenario? See, if you suspect that your branches are producing little or no fruit, this teaching is for you. And if you suspect that you are producing some fruit, but that you could be producing a whole lot more, this teaching is definitely for you. All right, so... Back to our uh, master text in John 15 then. I want to give you a couple of concepts here about what Jesus was conveying about fruitfulness. So the first thing I want to communicate to you is that abundant fruitfulness, you might want to write this down, abundant fruitfulness is not only possible with everyone, but expected. I want to say that again. Abundant fruitfulness is not only possible with everyone, but expected. And the second point I want to make about that is from verse 2 of that master text that we read, that every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away, or depending on what version you're reading, cuts off. Um, Okay, so I want to elaborate on that for a moment. What does that mean? Because I think it's very important that we get our heads around what that means. Because some people have interpreted that to mean that if you're, if you're not bearing good fruit, you can't be a Christian. But I want you to focus in on something that that passage says. It says, notice that it says that every branch in me, Jesus said. Every branch in me. See, the New Testament repeatedly describes believers as in Christ. Repeatedly. So I, I believe it's possible for someone to be in Christ, but have seasons where they're showing little or no fruit. And that's when the vine dresser steps in. So a clearer translation then of, quote, takes away or cuts off is found in the Greek word eros, okay? Which better translated according to the Greek, eros means to take up or to lift up. And we see that same word used in Matthew 14, verse 20, where it says the disciples took up, eros, the disciples took up 12 baskets of food after the feeding of the 5,000. It's the same word. In fact, in both the Bible and Greek literature, eros never means to cut off or to take away. Uh, Rather, eros, or to lift up, suggests the image of a vine dresser leaning over to pick up or lift up a branch. Well, why does Jesus use that imagery? Well, you know, I'm no expert in vine dressing, but from what I've read, um, those branches tend to trail down and grow along the ground. And they don't bear fruit down there because they get caked with dust and and mud and uh, they become sick and unproductive and unfruitful. So, the vine dresser lifts up those branches and washes them off, which is the first step. 
And the second step is they wrap them around a trelly or they tie them around a stick or a rod and, and pretty soon they're thriving again, like you see in that picture there where he's tying the branches around a, a rod there. That's why he's doing that in that picture is to lift them up off the ground so that they don't get caked in the elements, the dust and the mud, so that they can bear fruit. That's what they do. So it's a beautiful imagery of what God does for us. Well, again, Jesus was talking to people who knew agriculture. So he used that illustration of how the Father will make sure that his branches are bearing fruit and giving him a harvest. And those branches are you and me. Are you and me. See, when we fall into the dirt, God doesn't throw us away or abandon us. Praise God. He lifts us up, cleans us off, and helps us to flourish again as long as we're responding to him, as long as we're responsive to him. You see, for the Christian, sin is like the dirt that cakes those grape leaves. Uh, air and light can't get in, so the branches don't flourish, and therefore no fruit develops. So how does our vine dresser then, God, how does our vine dresser lift us up from the mud and grime? How does he move our branch from barren to beautiful so that we can bear fruit? Well, this is the best news that you probably didn't want to hear. <laughs> Here's our second key concept for this morning. If your life consistently bears no fruit, God will intervene to discipline you. All right, so... Bear with me here for the next little bit. See, if necessary, God will use painful measures to bring us to repentance. His purpose is to cleanse us and free us from our sinful patterns so that we begin living a life, an abundant life, that brings glory to him. And discipline is what happens, ladies and gentlemen, when the vine dresser lovingly steps in to lift us up and attempts to deliver us from our sinful pursuits. Is that wonderful news? Amen. Now, you've heard about tough love before, right? How sometimes we need to administer tough love. God does the same thing sometimes. In Deuteronomy 8.5, it says, As a man disciplines his son, so the Lord your God disciplines you. Now, don't get me wrong. We all sin from time to time. The Bible says that we all fail in many ways, okay? But what I'm talking about here where discipline is concerned is chronic sin problems, chronic sin problems, unconfronted behavior or attitudes that's blighting your life. So let me give you another scripture along those lines. Uh, Hebrews 12, verses 5 and 6 says, My son, do not take lightly the discipline of the Lord, and do not lose heart when he rebukes you. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves, and he scourges every son that he receives. He scourges every one that he receives as a son. All right. There's three important elements that I want to bring out about that passage in Hebrews right there. Three important points that uh, we're going to elaborate on here for the next few minutes. The first one is this. God is the source of all discipline. God is the source of all discipline. And secondly, God disciplines all believers, all of his children. He disciplines from time to time. He also always, always, always acts out of love. Now, before we proceed, let me ask the question here. Why would God ever want to bring pain, even 
small amounts of it. Well, it's to get our attention. It's the same concept with parenting, folks. You know, if you've got, you know, a little one who's a two or three years old and you're trying to teach them not to play near the busy street and they simply will not listen to you and they keep moving farther and farther out toward the busy street, guess what you're going to have to do? Apply a little discomfort to emphasize the teaching. Isn't that right? It's the same way with God. Parenting and the way God deals with us is very, very similar. So... The way that God disciplines, however, that's different than earthly parents, is that God never disciplines out of selfishness or rage like some earthly parents do. Um, God disciplines us for our good, always, always. He'll give us little nudges at first, and if we don't respond, then the efforts become more pronounced. Now, some people misread God's discipline and pay no attention. So a little discomfort then turns into significant pain until the lesson is learned. And by the way, the discipline doesn't have to continue. How long it lasts is up to you and me. I will only experience discomfort as long as I hang on to my sin. And remember that God's discipline doesn't mean that he doesn't love you. In fact, it means that he does love you. Folks, the Bible says of earthly parents, get this, the Bible says of earthly parents, that if you fail to discipline your children, you hate them. That's what the Bible says. Read the book of Proverbs. If you fail to discipline your children and to train them, you hate them. Why? Because you're setting them up for failure in life. And I want to speak to you young people here this morning, too. I know we've got a few young folks here. and I just want to say this to you about your parents. If you have parents that are diligent to train you and to discipline you at times and to bring a little bit of discomfort into your life when uh, you're not being obedient, hit your knees and thank God that you have a parent like that. Especially if you have two parents like that. You are blessed. You are blessed. So thank God for that. Hallelujah. Now, God is the very same way, by the way. He never stops loving us when we're off track. I want to emphasize that point. God never stops loving us when we're off track. See, his discipline never means also, and you've got to get this, his discipline never means that you're a worthless loser. His discipline never means that you're a worthless loser. The opposite is true. As a matter of fact, if you never receive discipline from the Lord, that's when you should doubt his favor in your life. Now, let me give you a scripture to back this up. Hebrews 12, 8, if you do not experience discipline like everyone else, then you are illegitimate children and not true sons. I know people who go to church living in sin, but never experience any discipline from the Lord, and it goes on and on and on and on. I would have to question whether or not those people are really in the family. Because a true child, God will bring discipline into that person's life. All right, so what are God's methods of discipline then? All right, so there are three degrees of intervention that we find in that passage in Hebrews that I want to bring to your attention. So first of all, let me say this before we, we jump into these three degrees of discipline. Um, let's just consider the power of a father's eyebrow for just a moment. I bet some of you had, had fathers that 
simply with the raise of an eyebrow, could snap you to attention just like that. Because you knew what was about to come if you didn't respond, right? Okay? So what are God's methods then? Well, let me ask you a question. Can you look back over your walk with God and see very clearly that a sinful behavior that you used to be caught up in is no longer an issue? Um, Are there thoughts, attitudes, habits that used to dominate your life that don't anymore? Well, if the answer is yes, then you're probably making progress. You're moving upward and onward with the Lord and bearing some fruit, praise God. But if you can't, Your basket is probably empty at the moment, and you're probably in a season of discipline at the time, at this particular time. So I want to try to help you to recognize God's methods of discipline then. So the first one is this, and again, this this comes from the Hebrews chapter 12 passage that we read a moment ago. Uh, In verse 5, it says, my son, do not be discouraged when you are rebuked by him. So this is the first level right here. The first degree of discipline is rebuke. A rebuke is a verbal warning. Okay? It's an inner nudge by the Holy Spirit. You know what I'm talking about that? It's an inner nudge by the Holy Spirit. Uh, it's, It's a knowing in your heart. Those of you that have experienced that know exactly what I'm talking about. It could also be a timely word from another person. So this rebuke, this first degree, um, is the most common form of discipline. But if we fail to heed those verbal warnings, those inner nudges, then God kicks up the heat just a little bit. So the second degree of discipline, and also in verse 5, is chasten. It says, for whom the Lord loves, he chastens. So this is usually in the form of emotional anxiety, frustration, or distress. What used to bring you joy doesn't anymore. And many people bump along, folks. Many people bump along in this level of discipline for a long time and fail to recognize the signs. So I want to help you to recognize the signs. These people in this particular category usually feel unfulfilled at church. Hello. They usually feel unfulfilled at church critical of their Christian friends, on the outs with God. When they pick up their Bibles, it feels more like drudgery instead of a cool drink of water. Their relationship with the Lord seems dampened by frustration or lethargy that they can't quite put their finger on. Now, if this describes you, by the way, this this might not be a self-discipline issue. It could be in some cases, but it might not necessarily be a self-discipline issue. You may not necessarily need to read the Bible more or go to more church services, okay? What you need to do is look for signs of ongoing sin in your life. And it might not always be a big, grotesque type of sin, It could be subtle things. You may have gotten past the big sins when you came to the Lord. You may have gotten past, you know, fornication and drunkenness and all the big sins that are so outwardly obvious. But now that God has peeled away that layer of the onion, he wants to get to the next layer and the next layer after that. So some of these sins may be a little bit more hidden to the rest of the world, but God's dealing with you about them. Does that make sense? So what we need to do then is look for signs of ongoing, unaddressed sin 
in our life of that scenario that I just described a moment ago about spiritual dryness and frustration with Bible reading and not feeling very fulfilled at church and all that. We need to look for ongoing signs of sin in our lives. Ask the Lord, Lord, um, in fact, you need to quote the Psalms when you pray. Uh, Lord, search my heart and know me and see if there's any offensive way in me. Praise God. And if a person fails to recognize and respond to this second level of discipline, then the third level is on its way. Look at the screen. Degree number three is scourging. That comes from verse six. He scourges everyone he receives as a son or a daughter. Well, now folks, to scourge is to whip, to inflict punishment. It's the very same word used to describe what the Romans did to Jesus. It's the same word. In fact, in the place of scourge, you can inflict the words intense pain right there. At this level of discipline, a person is living in open and unrepentant sin, an unaddressed sin. You know, C.S. Lewis once said that, that God whispers through pleasure, but he shouts through pain. God takes long-term, unrepentant, and unaddressed sin very seriously. If you're his child, he's going to step in to address that. The Apostle Paul said that unrepentant sin in the Corinthian church, as an example, was having a major impact on their community of faith. And church members were living in open and and terrible sins and uh, sharing the Lord's table, the, the communion table, like it was no big deal. And Paul said that their acts were bringing judgment upon themselves. That's referenced in 1 Corinthians 11, verse 30, where it says, That is why many of you are weak and sick, and some have even died. Hmm. We need to take that very, very soberly and seriously. Um, See, folks, this wasn't happening in just the Corinthian church. This is a New Testament concept. So this is happening today in churches all over America, all over the world, in Christians all over America in the world. This is happening today. And since so many Christians acknowledge that they're bearing no fruit and producing no fruit for God, uh, could it be that many are suffering dire consequences as a result? Now, I'm very aware that I'm, I'm wading into deep weeds right now. So uh, I probably need to make some cautionary statements right here just for clarification's sake. So here's some must-knows about God's methods. Okay, the first one is this. God will never hurt an innocent person to indirectly discipline a sinning person. In other words, God's not going to strike your child with cancer if you're out running around and having an affair. Okay? He deals with you personally. Okay, so that's the first one. The second one is this. When God does discipline, it's never out of impatience or a mean spirit. We have to understand that when God disciplines severely, it's always, always because of righteous judgment. See, in the Bible, for example, there were several times when God did indeed strike people with sickness, but always, always, always it was because of of an act of judgment, okay? See, God never does that sort of thing to people who are living righteously just to humble them further or something. 
God's ways are always good and just and righteous. Now, you may ask the question, okay, well, what about Job then? Well, I don't have time to elaborate on Job this morning. I've I've taught on Job several times. Um, I, I just suffice it to say for this morning that the book of Job is probably one of the most misunderstood books in the entire Bible. And I've taught on that at least three or four times. So if you have questions about Job, um, why don't you let me know and I'll send you the audio link to the teachings from our website where I address Job in a lot of detail. And that will help you understand how misunderstood as a culture the book of Job is, uh, again, in this culture. Um, You know, another thing that I want to address here too as a clarifying remark is um, natural circumstances. You know, just because, well, let, let me say this. For, for those people that um, smoke cigarettes, as an example, and they come down with emphysema or lung cancer, it's not, God, it's not that God is disciplining them and, and bringing sickness upon them. That's just a natural outcome of some bad choices. That's all. And, and the devil didn't do it to them. They kind of did it to themselves, didn't they? Right? Okay, so we need to factor those things in as well. Um, and we live in a fallen world. Sometimes hap- things happen that we can't control. They're outside of our control. Sometimes collateral damage happens from other people. And also I have to address tribulation. Sometimes tribulation happens. Persecution also happens. You know, the Bible sa- it says in this world you will have tribulation from time to time. You will have frustrations and challenges from time to time. And those who live, de- desire to live righteously, the Bible says, will be persecuted. So when you're being persecuted, it doesn't mean that God is chastising you. As a matter of fact, when we're persecuted for righteousness' sake, the Bible says we're blessed. Okay, so we have to factor all those things in as well and discern what you're going through, whether or not it's just a natural outcome of a bad choice I've made. Is this persecution? Is this just a natural frustration of life? Or is this God's chastening? And sometimes that's difficult to discern, and that's why you have to go before the Lord and like search your heart and let God search your heart and see if there's any offensive way in me, Lord, and see if there's something that you need to address before the Lord. Does that make sense? All right, another clarification. God always offers opportunities to respond to him right up until death. You know, God is the God of second chances and third chances and fourth chances and 450,000 chances. As long as you're alive, as long as you're breathing, you get another chance. I don't care if you crossed the, if you went around the same mountain 1,364 times. God's ready to take you around yet another one until you learn your lesson. And that's why there's some people that are 50 years old in the Lord. They've been serving the Lord for 50 years. They're still in second grade spiritually because they've not learned their lesson. And God just says, okay, um, you don't ultimately fail in this life. I'm just going to take you around the mountain again. And maybe this time you'll pass. And that would be the hope. God never gives you an F on the paper. He, He puts an R on your paper for redo. Okay? Praise God. He's so merciful that way. All right? So once again, God always offers opportunities to respond to him right up until death because he's a God of wonderful grace. Well, all this being the case, then what stops some people from cleaning up their acts? Well, I believe it's because of terrible misconceptions about God. See, a lot of times people never connect their choices 
with the negative circumstances they're experiencing because people only see God as a God of love and mercy, but never a God of discipline. And that's an imbalanced view of God. Ladies and gentlemen, read the Bible. For every one time the Bible mentions God's love and mercy, it mentions his discipline and wrath twice. Boy, it got quiet in here. You liked that one, didn't you? God is a God of discipline. The Bible says that judgment begins with the house of God. Judgment begins with the house of God. So I want to say that again. A lot of times people never connect the, the negative experiences they're, they're going through with the choices that they make because we've been conditioned to think of God as a God of love and mercy only, but never a God of discipline. And that's a very imbalanced view of God from the scriptures. So, do you recognize yourself in any of these misguided statements? Now, I'm about to smash some sacred cows here. Because, I mean, honestly, we live in a, a church culture now. Listen, seriously, we live in a church culture now that's a mile wide and an inch deep. So we have all these misconceptions about God. I can't, I can't even count them, a, a number of people that I've met that go to church. They go to church regularly. But they have no idea what the Bible says. They are so biblically illiterate, it's unbelievable to me how people can spend 30 years in the Bible, and uh, 30 years in church, and not know the Bible any better than they do. Because either the church that they go to is very shallow and doesn't really deep dive into the deep things of the Word, and or they don't read the Word for their, themselves. So I'm going to address some misguided attitudes right now that are really born out of biblical illiteracy. So you ready? Okay, this first one is this. The pain and negative circumstances in my life are a result of natural consequences or fate. They're not connected to my choices. I kind of already addressed that one already. The next one is this. If God does discipline me somehow, it would probably be a one-time deal. He's much too forgiving for it to be ongoing. <laughs> Wrong. Next, the enjoyment I get from my sin outweighs any spiritual benefit I might get from stopping. That's also very wrong. And my sins aren't really hurting anyone anyway. How do you know? How do you know that you're not passing down generational trends to your children? And I want to address the first part of that statement. The enjoyment I get from my sin outweighs any spiritual benefit I might get from stopping. That's completely, I mean, oh my goodness, that's so wrong. Because God wants to bless you. He only wants to take certain things away from you that are harming you. That are harming you. And replace it with something that's good. He wants to give you love, joy, peace. And, and he, he wants to give you a fulfilling life. Jesus said in John 10.10, 10, the devil comes to steal, kill, and destroy. But I've come, Jesus said, that you may have life and have it how? More abundantly. That, that's his hope for you. That's his desire for you to, to live a more abundant life. But in order for you to live a more abundant life, you're going to have to give up some things that are harming you, that are, that are sinful, that don't bring God glory. 
that are like the ball and chain in your life that are keeping you from the greater realms of God's blessing and favor in your life. Okay, I've got a few more. Here's another one. I can't help myself. Uh That's a big X. That's not what the Bible says. The Bible says that God is giving you everything that you need for life and godliness. So go back to the quote. I can't help myself. The problem goes back to my childhood. So why wouldn't God extend grace instead of discipline? Well, folks, listen, he has extended grace. The grace of God, says the book of Titus, teaches us to say no to sin and worldly passions and to live a self-controlled, upright, and godly life in this present age. That's a concept of grace right there that most of the church today does not know. Most people today think grace means that I can do whatever I want and God forgives me. Well, grace does mean that it's unmerited favor, so you get the forgiveness that you don't deserve, and you don't get the punishment that you do deserve. That's a one definition of a grace. But the book of Titus tells us that, that uh, the grace of God has appeared to all men that teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions and to live a self-controlled, upright, and godly life in this present age. If you've made Jesus your Lord, you have the spirit of, of God living in you, you have the power through his grace to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions and live a self-controlled and upright life in this present age. So that thing right there, I can't help myself, completely false. Completely, that's, a, that's an excuse. It's an excuse to keep going in your, in your sin and selfishness. Next one, just because I'm sinning doesn't mean I can't do something for God. Hey, God uses crooked sticks, right? We can't all be Billy Grahams, you know. The Bible also tells us that in, in extravagant houses, there are articles both for um, extravagant use and also ones for common use. Um, there's vases for beautifying a house, and then there's trash cans. That's what that's referring to. And he says, if you will cleanse yourself from the latter, in other words, all the junk and the sin that puts you in that latter category of being a trash can, a, a person of common use in the goodly house, then, then if you'll cleanse yourself from the latter, then God will use you for more noble purposes. That's what that passage is referring to. So no, this one's not true either. Again, let me reread the passage. Just because I'm sinning doesn't mean I can't do something for God. That's true in, to a degree, but at some point, um, well, uh, first of all, let me, I'm just, this, the, all these thoughts are going around in my, my head here. Let me try to uh, organize my thoughts here. So at some point, we're going to have to understand that you're not being used to the, to the extent that you otherwise would be if you were living righteously. Secondly, if you're in more of a public type of setting, how many preachers have we seen crash and burn publicly because they got to where they were by living righteously and doing things right, and then once they got to a level of prominence, they let their pride get a hold of them, and they weren't watchful anymore, and they started to do things. It comes on by degrees, right? Sin comes on, I mean, gross sin comes on by degrees, and then they, they crash and burn, and God lets it happen publicly. Why? To show people, you can't mess around with this. You, you don't mess around with this. So, 
it's very, very important that we understand the, the implications of what I'm talking about here this morning. Okay, this is the last one. Uh, the last um, misguided statement that I'll address here. It's not really rebellion against God. It's just a weakness, part of my personality, something I struggle with. Boy, that's a great way to pardon and excuse yourself, isn't it? Again, not what the Bible says. Not what the Bible says. Sin is a violation of his commands. It's rebellion against his word. It's rebellion against his nature. It's an affront to the holiness of God, which he tells us to walk in. So now, if you recognize yourself in any of this, these uh, misconceptions, do you see what you're really saying? You're saying, my sin doesn't have consequences. God's not going to pursue this. I like my sin too much to quit. and My sin won't diminish my effectiveness. Folks, the longer we embrace these tragically misguided ideas, the longer we stay in the discipline of God. We're asking him to turn up the heat. He loves us too much to allow us to stay where we are. You love your children too much to allow them to stay where they are if they're misbehaving and if they're going off track. You're going to try to intervene and do something about that. You know, the Bible says of King David, he had an adult son by the name of Adonijah. And the Bible says that David never said to him, why do you behave the way that you do? That's not the kind of parent you want to be, is it? Even with your adult children, if you see them careening off choice, off course, you want to step in and say, why are you doing this? Right? God is the same toward us, folks. He's going to step in and not allow us to stay where we are if we're off, if we're off track. Do you know what the Bible word for a change of direction is? Thank you, Bill. Repent. Repentance. Repentance is simply a change of direction. Yes, it means being humbly and sorry for your sins, but it's not just that. It means turning around and going the other way. That's repentance. And responding to God's discipline brings immediate benefits. See, we not only escape the consequences of our sin, but we grow into maturity and become exceedingly fruitful. Praise God. Listen, repentance, folks, doesn't just bring us back to zero. It takes us from minus 10 to plus 10. Praise the Lord. And as I said last week, um, repentance isn't just a one-time act. It's a lifestyle. It doesn't just happen at the moment that you, you come to the Lord in your, your first act of repentance. It's a lifestyle from that point forward. You're making constant adjustments, or should be, along the way. It's like, you know, you've heard me use the analogy before of driving down the highway, your hands up on the wheel, and you're making these little small adjustments on the wheel to keep you between the lines, right? That's how we should be living our Christian life, making little adjustments along the way. That's called repentance. You, see some, you say something that you're like, oh, you know what, I shouldn't have said that, um, and you repent, right? Yes. Okay? You have a critical attitude towards someone. You, you recognize that, that uh, man, I'll just tell on myself. I was at uh, Drew's basketball game uh, yesterday, and I saw someone there that we'd had a kind of a big blow up with. Uh, whoo, boy, uh, this, anyway, I'm not going to get into the details. 
Um, and uh, this, this person was acting like really, really ugly toward our family. And, and anyway, so that, was, that happened last year. And I hadn't seen her for a long time. And uh, she was working the, uh, the table there for, uh, to pay when you get in. And um, so as I was leaving the game, um, she was there. She had taken over for another person that I, you know, it was a different person that was taking money when, when I came in. So when I left, she was sitting there. I had to walk right by her. And I went, hey. <laughs> right, sort of, sort of politely. I wanted to be polite, but it's like I could feel that thing in my heart like, uh, oh yeah, oh, it's you. Hey. And I, I, I wasn't 10 steps out the door and the, and the Lord said, did you notice that? So if you're paying attention, if you're walking with the Lord, if you're being transparent before him, he will point things out and you're going to have to go, oh yeah, Lord, I did see that. Please forgive me. And then you're going to have to ask, Lord, is there anything I need to do in that relationship? Is there any, do I need to approach her? So, you know, the questions like that you need to, need to ask because it's not just about the big, ugly, gross, socially unacceptable sins. God wants to take his work deeper and deeper and deeper in you all the time. Amen. Praise God. So, again, as I said, um, repentance isn't just a one-time act. It should be a lifestyle. And look... Repentance precedes the presence of Jesus being sent to us so that, as we talked about last week in the book of Acts, times of refreshing may come. Hallelujah. So, look, once you learn this truth and experience it for yourself, uh, you'll probably wonder how you could have resisted your father's kindness for so long and at such cost. Look at the wasted years. Hmm. It's time to get up out of the mud, ladies and gentlemen, and allow your vine dresser to take you to a place of abundant fruitfulness this year. Amen. Praise God. Stand and pray with me, please. You've been listening to the teaching ministry of Pastor Andy Robbins and Blessed Life Fellowship. For more teaching and ministry resources, go to the church website at www.blessedlifefellowship.org. Thanks for listening, and may God's grace and favor shine on you.